welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and it's good to be back in the chair of this podcast. I'm the director of ECFR and this week we're going to be talking about how best to protect Europe from economic coercion. Later this year, the European Commission will launch the anti-coercion instrument, a tool that would enable the European Union to protect its citizens and businesses from coercion from other great powers by countering economic blackmail from countries like China, Russia and Turkey and even the United States. But there's still many questions left unanswered. In what circumstances could such a tool be triggered? What kinds of countermeasures could protect Europe? And how do we make sure that it doesn't launch a new cycle of protectionism and that we're able to keep markets open and support a functional global trading order? Luckily, we have a new ECFR report which tries to answer all of those questions and to look in greater detail at what a coercion instrument could and should look like. And I'm very happy to welcome the two authors of that report, ECFR fellows Pavel Tserka and Jonathan Hakenbroich, who is also the head of ECFR's task force for protecting Europe from economic coercion. Thank you both very much for joining. So why don't we start with the question of threats? I mean, on the podcast before, we've talked a lot about how globalisation and interdependence are being weaponised and how the great conflicts of the future are not just going to be about control of the air and the seas and of outer space, but also looking at how a lot of the ties that bind us together are being instrumentalized by great powers. We've talked about the sort of tech conflicts between China and America and cyber wars and other kinds of things like that. But maybe before we go into the details of this instrument, you could explain why an anti-coercion instrument is necessary. What kinds of threats could it help respond to? What have we already experienced? What, what are we scared might happen in the future? I can take a first stab at it because uh, the question really is where to start, uh, Mark. And you've done a lot of work that you just outlined on connectivity wars and weaponized interdependence, and there's a lot out there. Um, but if we think of recent months of what happened, um, then I think we could start with you know Russian threats against the Czech Republic to curb Czech beer imports into Russia um, as punishment for the Czech government identifying Russia behind explosions in 2014. We could think of Turkish President Erdogan calling for boycotting French products over stance, you know, Macron's Macron policy announcement on extremism. Um, but really what, what probably comes to mind, for, uh, what's on everyone's mind, I think probably is the Chinese sanctions and Chinese sanctions directly against Europeans. And now there are many who focus for good reasons on, on the personal sanctions that were imposed on ambassadors and European ambassadors, European think tankers, as part of this asymmetric reaction that China um, that we saw from China against the EU when the EU listed four local uh, officials over human rights violations in Xinjiang. Uh, but there was an economic story behind it, and, and the economic damage wasn't big. So uh, sanctions were, were there. You could see them against Adidas and H&M, which just disappeared from e-commerce platforms in China all of a sudden uh, over policies they had adopted months ago, but right after the EU um, chose, chose to impose those human rights sanctions. 
Um, and they face popular boycotts, which are, um, from our point of view, uh, an increasingly common Chinese uh, sanctions tactic, where where China, where Chinese all of a sudden start start boycotting Chinese patriots, start boycotting, well, in this case, European products. But it really is is fairly clear that there is a connection to policy and policy goals, um, and that they are stoked these boycotts. Um, and what was as I said, the economic damage wasn't that big on H&M and Adidas and, and you know, overall, if we take our entire trade volume, but the message of it was was incredibly important for Europeans. Um, and 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 it was that be cautious if you if you close ranks too much with the US, if you if you start going after human rights violations, then there's economic damage looming. And and that's not just implicit in 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 the sanctions, but it was very much explicit because the Global Times uh, shortly after published a long readout, very uncommon to do that, a long readout of a, com- t- a phone conversation between Merkel and Xi Jinping, where Xi Jinping formulated his expectations for Germany and also Europe to take independent stances, to make strategic autonomy basically something that means you're neutral and uh, and where he, he just formulated what are the sort of policies he wants Europe to see. And if not, that's the message of the sanctions. I think we have to expect, um, we can expect in any case, economic punishment, especially when you think of, that's the last sentence on this, of what China has done with other countries, most notably Australia, where it curbed 10% of Australian exports as a punishment for Australia's public call for an independent inquiry into the Wuhan pandemic outbreak. And and simply because Australia chose not to um, not to include Huawei or not to let Huawei build its 5G network. And that's, of course, something that's really my last sentence on this. And as I said, I could go on forever on these threats. Uh, And Pavel has a lot to add, I'm sure. But that was exactly something that the Chinese ambassador in Berlin has also already threatened. Um, If if Germany was to exclude Huawei from Germany's 5G network building, then maybe there should be car tariffs against German automakers, uh, and 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 he said that publicly. So so there's there's a variety of threats, and um, and economic coercion is is very much a big topic, I think. So if I were to add something to this, uh, Jonathan mentioned China, Russia, Turkey, but of course the, the whole discussion about uh, the economic coercion a year or two years ago was largely driven by by the perceived threat of of the US economic pressure and, for example, its uh, extraterritorial sanctions. The context uh, has radically changed with the election of Joe Biden, but uh, I think that uh, this justification for for Europe's thinking about its defenses against economic coercion should not be uh, completely forgotten because we, we don't know what the next presidents of the US would be and also because the U.S. pressure, to the same extent as the pressure from, from China, Russia or, or Turkey, shows that Europe is simply vulnerable. And I believe that, that even the U.S. would prefer a resilient rather than a vulnerable Europe as its partner in, in uh, geopolitical dealings. So that leads us to this question about the gaps in the EU's defences. Is Europe particularly vulnerable to these kind of threats? Are we more vulnerable than other powers? I, I can start on that. And, uh, and with Jonathan, we identified four types of a gap in, in Europe's uh, defences. One is about trade being increasingly used as a weapon in geopolitical dealings. 
And uh, whereas uh, the World Trade Organization or the dispute settlement systems in, in bilateral uh, agreements that EU has with, with partners across the world, uh, they are not adapted to such uh, cases because they are focused on unfair trade practices. And uh, economic coercion is about something different when third countries want to influence uh, policies in other areas, not necessarily economic areas, made by the EU or its member states, and they are exerting pressure on the Europeans using those trade channels. And the same, it's the same what, what, what China did, did against Australia. It used uh, trade uh, curbs, but it did so as a punitive thing after, after Australia uh, insisted on an international investigation into the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak. This shows that, that uh, this uh, intersection between trade and other areas becomes a problem and, and Europe does not have tools where it could defend itself against such instrumentalization of, of uh, trade uh, channel for different uh, purposes. And there are other elements of the gap. Let me just mention one other and then I'll let uh, Jonathan continue. And this is about Europe's unanimity requirement in its foreign policy, which means that it's very easy to divide Europe on, uh, on foreign policy uh, issues and uh, make it vulnerable or uh, unable to take uh, collective action. And the fact that, uh, that economic coercion goes through economic channels, provides uh, an opportunity to develop tools which would be trade tools and therefore not necessarily subject to unanimity requirement, which should make Europe less vulnerable if it decides to adopt such a, such a toolkit. So, Jonathan, do you want to add any vulnerabilities or should we move on to, to what we can do about it and uh, lay out some of the the thoughts which you have in your paper on the, the anti-coercion instrument. Yeah, sure. I think Pavel covered it um, really well, so we, I think we can we can go to that. I think swiftness is important to mention. So what Europe does not have and what current international trade architecture does not provide is a way to react to economic coercion in a, in a swift manner because we can, of course, go to WTO and... Uh, Let's assume that at some stage the dispute settlements mechanism at the WTO will work again. But even if it works, it will take several years to resolve a dispute. And by that time, the goal of economic coercion could already be achieved by, for example, China, which uh, uh, pressures German government to allow Chinese companies in its bid for, for the building of 5G network and, and things like that. So what Europe does not have right now is a way to respond quickly or to, to show the credibility in being able to respond quickly to such a pressure in a swift manner. So that, that in a way is a sort of political question as much as a technical one. And I think there's sort of three key political questions which you look at in your report. The first is, is about what forms of economic coercion should trigger EU countermeasures. The second is about what kinds of economic countermeasures the EU could impose. And then finally, you know, how and when this should happen. Jonathan, do you want to talk us through some of the ideas about and some of the answers you, you pose to those questions? 
as Pavel said, there's you know there a lot of people are are wondering and and rightly asking, do we do we really need another instrument? Uh, is you know the EU has other instruments, enforcement regulation, updated export controls, FDI screening, foreign direct investment screening. Um, there's a lot that that has come up. Why do you need to be able to take swift countermeasures, even though in general, in principle, the WTO is meant to avoid that and prevent that from happening? And the idea really is to be. For Europe at eye level, because if economic coercion is done well, it achieves its goal long before the WTO, you know, 18 months later gives you a ruling. And so so these questions of these political questions of what do you respond to, what countermeasures do you take and so forth uh, are, are really important. So on the first one, we, we looked at it, it looks like, you know, the question of, okay, what do others have to do so that we can trigger countermeasures? Or what do we want a deterrent for? Because ideally, we never want to use the instrument, of course. It's not like Europe wants to proactively take punitive measures. Um, and this instrument really isn't designed or, or shouldn't be designed that way and doesn't look like it, like the EU is going for that for a good reason. But what do you respond to? The question is, you obviously need a legal basis in international law. You can't just do whatever you want, even though others are doing that, but you need a violation of international law that you respond to. And you have that one option of, of just going for violations of state sovereignty. This is this is what the commission seems to be going for. So if you if someone gravely interferes with your ability to adopt a certain decisions, like uh, secure on security policy, do you let Huawei build your 5G network? And then China makes it makes it a choice between accepting Huawei and or a lot of job losses at home. In that case you probably need a defense so to prevent that choice to shift that choice uh, to china for you know do you really want to impose punitive measures because we also can 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 impose countermeasures um so that's you could have predefined triggers and think about exactly if the forms punitive tariffs certain types of uh, export uh, import curbs um uh, like china has, has uh, imposed on australia but the the problem we just see is that if you adopt that approach that the eu seems to be uh, adopting you have a problem of flexibility you need to adapt you need to be able to respond to measures of economic coercion that you, you're not thinking of today. Because if you're just saying, okay, a punitive tariff is something we will respond to, um, or a violation of sovereignty, big, high threshold, then third countries like China can can um, can devise their measures in a way that, that makes sure that you, they don't, you know, reach that threshold or... They're more subtle. China often at times uses economic coercion in informal ways, so it's hard to capture it even. And so what we think, at the same time, you can't make it too too large. So so what we think is there should be a mechanism uh, for the EU Commission to propose that a certain measure um, qualifies as coercive. And if member states, by a qualified majority, agree, agree then you should be able to trigger the instrument. So in certain limited cases, it should go beyond what the EU now defines as, as predefined triggers. What Jonathan just uh, said is largely a question as to whether we do anything about coercion, which is directed at, at companies and not just the states. And uh, this is uh, a key question concerning the, the scope of the new tool. And the second big question is about countermeasures that we would envisage using if we were to use or threaten the use of anti-coercion instrument. And we looked into a couple of promising uh, ideas as to what could be included in the in the new uh, anti-coercion instrument as its countermeasures. We realized that, that uh, useful 
countermeasures would need to be both effective and credible. And by effective, I mean that they could uh, be seen as a threat by, by, by the third country. But at the same time, they need to be credible in the sense that uh, Europeans would uh, need to be able to take the decision to use such countermeasures. Can we be a bit more specific? So if we take some of the examples we talked about before, so say there's a a fuss because the EU put some officials in Xinjiang on a sanctions list and mysteriously Adidas finds itself um, losing uh, its its right to sell on online platforms in China, for example. What does the EU do? Does Does it basically block Huawei from selling handsets in its markets? Or? So our, our thinking is that before China takes a decision to do any sort of economic coercion against Europe, it needs to know that Europe has a toolkit, which includes several countermeasures that Europe could use in the case of, uh, of the Chinese wrongdoing. And such toolkit could include not just tariffs and trade curbs, which could uh, which Europe could threaten in response to to such a sort of economic coercion by China, but it could also include, for example, a restricted or access to uh, to the EU's public procurement markets. And uh, China, over the past ten years, has enjoyed has received four point five billion euros in its access to, to to the EU's procurement markets. So it's not nothing, but it, it would be just one among various uh, countermeasures. Other could, for example, include export controls. Which means that Europe could, for example, in response to economic coercion, block some exports towards China, which also means that blocks a transfer of know-how from Europe to China. And in many areas, this is uh, the, the, the China. China wouldn't care, but uh, there are some sectors in which China still depends on on the Western or European know-how and needs an access to to, to European uh, exports. There's, therefore, w- what we suggest is that there are some areas in which Europe could harm China or other third countries. And therefore, for Europe's anti-coercion toolkit to be credible and to serve the role of a deterrent, Europe really needs to to, uh, have a couple of those possible countermeasures uh, that it could threaten in the case of economic coercion. Jonathan, is it realistic that the EU would be able to to do that kind of stuff? I mean, it's pretty difficult for the EU even to release statements uh, condemning the behaviour of of some governments because countries like Hungary um, will often water down even statements of concern, let alone bringing in tough economic countermeasures. How would you how would these things be decided? Is it going to be something which needs unanimous decisions by the by by the European Council or um, are there other ways of, of doing these things? I mean, the worst we could do was was to create yet another instrument that that one country can block or where it's just absolutely not credible that we would use it. Um, But the upside is, yes, it's possible. And it actually is something that that is that that could happen and and that that the EU could do. And this is because we're in uh, with most of the countermeasures um, and and. The ones we think are are important are only those that where it works um, are in the realm of you know the EU trade policy and and we know that um, there you you have a lot of centralized power in Brussels at the same time you can have qualified majority votes 
but not unanimity requirements on to make sure that member states agree if it's a very consequential decision. But the bottom line is, yes, we can do that. We can we can impose investment restrictions, um, tariffs, trade curbs. There is even a way to to withhold you know certain critical product products that that Pavel was just saying that are really important to for China and others to get through procedures that don't require unanimity. And that's the thing. That really, that's why we called it at some point a collective defense instrument, because because it enables a collective response, it, and the EU could actually be credible here. So you said before that uh, the idea is deterrence. Ideally, we build instruments we'll never have to use them because people will be scared of so scared of uh, them being used that it will change their behavior, which makes a lot of sense to people in the in the, in the kind of security and defense uh, establishment. We've lived with debates about deterrence for decades now, but. Most people who've trained as economists are much more worried about this. They worry that the EU, which depends maybe more than anyone else on a rule-based international order, could end up actually opening a Pandora's box and creating all sorts of problems for itself and actually speed up the uh, the descent into a kind of all-out trade war and protectionism. Pavel, you um, have a professional defamation because I think you train, you've got a PhD in economics, so you probably share some of these um, liberalising sentiments. How worried are you that there could be negative byproducts of of an EU anti-coercion instrument? And what kinds of strategies do you think the EU could take to mitigate the, the risks? Yeah, you are right about my education. And actually, I must say that I joined the discussion when Jonathan already had an idea of this anti-coercion instrument and was thinking about it a lot. And I joined him as an intellectual sparring partner. And uh, when, when we started discussing it, I was mostly skeptical because I had all of those concerns about what it would mean for the for multilateralism for Europe's position on uh, WTO and its reliance on on, on the rule-based order but also wouldn't it inflict uh, economic costs on European countries and companies and wouldn't uh, it actually and the consumer ultimately I suppose if you're starting to make things more expensive yes and also whether it wouldn't shift the focus in Europe's economic policy from openness towards protectionism and therefore I was uh, I was worried about the certain things but uh, first uh, through discussions with Jonathan I I became convinced that that there is a case for uh, for developing defenses against economic coercion in Europe because there is a gap. And also, we spent a lot of time with Jonathan thinking about uh, mitigation strategies. So how to mitigate those various risks of protectionism or, or harming the multilateralism with such an instrument. And uh, I admit that the Europe would need to fret very carefully if it decides to, to have such an instrument because those risks are real. But at the same time, one needs to set those risks against the risks of not having such an instrument at all. And it's a fallacy to believe that not having defenses at all would be beneficial for the WTO, for example, because actually the multilateral uh, setting is being harmed right now in the situation where uh, several countries are encouraged to use economic coercion because it's a low-hanging fruit for them, an opportunity that involves little risk 
and uh, has potentially great rewards. And therefore, one needs to think about how, how to minimize the risks that such a tool would uh, mean for, for Europeans. And the, this can mean, for example, in practice, uh, a decision-making process which would uh, ensure that the instrument would be used only when, when Europe can justify that the international public law has been broken or also some sort of a reporting towards the European Parliament so that there is a, also a legitimacy assured in the use of this instrument. Europe could also be very restrictive in using or threatening the use of such an instrument in instances where not public authorities, but the business or NGOs are targeted. It would always have to justify that that sovereignty what was really at stake. At the same time, Europe needs to be careful about the message that it sends to the rest of the world. If it stops at just adopting an anti-coercion instrument, then others would be able to easily uh, blame it for becoming more protectionist. Uh, that's why we believe that uh, if Europe decides to have such an instrument, It would have to be accompanied by a clear positive agenda related to trade opening, but also to the strengthening of the European economy. And uh, the end result should be Europe sending a clear message and powerful message to the world that the EU is determined to defend international rules and that it can do it not just in rhetoric, which is the case right now, right now but also by countering Uh, the existing coercive practices. Okay, well, I think we've covered quite a lot of ground. If anyone wants to go more deeply into this, then you must download the report from our website, where we will also be putting up the bookshelf recommendations for this week. And I think that's the, the one thing that we have left to do on this podcast. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Jonathan? I'll go with Learning Empire uh, by Eric Rimmer Solem that uh, was published sometime, I think, earlier this year, but in any case, it's fairly new. And, and it's about Germany's quest for world status um, as a rising power back in the 19th and early 20th century and traces five economists and their thoughts and what, how they thought about economic statecraft and how that shaped Germany, German policies and therefore world policies, because Germany was, this, was the rising power, much like some would say, obviously, that there are limits to the parallels, but much like China today. And, and there, are, there are fascinating parallels on, on economic statecraft and things one can learn. Pavel? Maybe as a further reading, rather than something that I'm necessarily reading right now, but one of my favorite books on trade is the all-time classic by Albert Hirschman from 1977 called The Passions and the Interests. And it's the story of how being a merchant suddenly became a respectable job. One didn't need to go to war and to fight in order to be respected. And this is a semantic change that uh, also allowed uh, the, the world to, to, to become richer and more open and, and a better place. And I think that it's, it's uh, something which is worth coming back to in the context of economic coercion, because we are watching again those passions and, and interests becoming increasingly intertwined and trade channel being used for other geopolitical goals. So I, I find it interesting to look at it also through the prism of, of that classic book. Okay. And as for my recommendation, it's actually something that I've written rather than something that I have been reading. Listeners to the podcast will realize that I haven't 
been around very much in the last few weeks and it's because my father was very sick and I took a few weeks off to be close to him in to, at the end of his life. Um, unfortunately, he passed away on the 24th of June. But he, in many ways, embodied a lot of the values which had led me to get involved in European politics and to establish ECFR. And I wrote a short account of his fascinating life, which begins just after the, the Great Depression in 1930, when he's born, and sees him reinvent himself many times as an early think tanker in the 1950s. You see how he uh, went through the, the Cold War, how he understood the importance of, of television for politics and covers the America first televised election in America, flying around the country with JFK and his plane, going to see the United Nations General Assembly set up and then coming back to the UK where he got involved in British politics, becoming a member of parliament and voting against his party whip so that Britain could join the European Union. And then going into a new phase in Brussels as a assistant editor of The Economist, where he covered a lot of the big stories about the creation of the modern European Union, the, the, the creation of the single European market and the, the euro, uh, the enlargement of the European Union. And then he has a final phase in London when he once again reinvents himself as a, as a historian and writes a series of really important books which profile every single British prime minister over the last 300 years. Anyway, it's been a very tough few weeks for me. I'm very proud to been able to spend them with my father in his last few days. And I think some people might be interested to read a bit more about his life. So I'll put a link up to that account of his life, which I wrote for my Facebook page. Anyway, it's been a fascinating discussion. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, feel free to let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or on ours. If you could give us a good rating or review on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on, we would be very, very grateful for that. In the meantime, as I said earlier, we'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Jonathan Hackenbrosch, Pavel Tserka and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor this week is Marlene Riedel.